Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Radiotherapy is in your ears for the next hour to talk about all things health and well-being. And welcome back to 2024 to you guys. It's me, Panel Beater, with Dr. Sharma. Good morning, Dr. Sharma. Good morning and Happy New Year to you. Oh, and Happy New Year to you. Yeah, we were just talking about what is the social um, protocol around Happy New Year's. It's now February 11th. We're still saying Happy New Year. That's all good, isn't it? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, if you haven't seen anyone since New Year's Eve, I believe it's acceptable. Still do it. Up yep. in until as late as September. It's September. Yes. Right, that's the rule. It's in the book. <laughs> that's right. It's a curb your enthusiasm storyline right there. Uh, good stuff. Um, you didn't notice the dead air, did you? No, no, no not at all. I didn't no. notice it. No, God, no. No, nobody it, noticed it. I'll tell you what, it is, it's nice to see, Panel Beater, you, <laughs> your brain on low power mode for once. The man who had to be forced to go on leave by his I employer. Uh, so it's good to see you, you know, having to put some effort in to, oh, yeah. to get the gears going a bit. Get the motor running, yeah. Rule number one, radio, don't have dead air. Rule number two, don't talk about the dead air that you had. So just broken those two rules in the first couple of minutes. You're a bad boy. Yeah, there we go. Just uh, giving the middle finger to the norms. <laughs> That's what the spirit of this show really is, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's good to be back, but we're absent of a couple of colleagues. We are lean. What's going on with dementia? D- dementia. With dementia. Dilemma. We're going to be talking about dementia a little bit later. Uh, Dr. It's almost like you forgot your train of thought uh, there. Uh, how, how apt? Well, okay. Well, a couple of issues, and it's all really to do with exams and paediatrics exams, really. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Neo has the exam very soon on Monday. So specialty exams, they yeah. are some of the most academically stressful times in any doctor's life, probably the most stressful time, really. So, Dr. Sharma, with the insight that you've got, in, a, in the career trajectory of a young doctor, where does this fit in in terms of, well, we've obviously got the university mm. training, where does this fit in? This is true postgraduate training. It is blending both real-life experience with the most up-to-date knowledge one can have. And I would say that week of the exams is the most you will ever know. The most you are carrying this invisible fish tank of just, you know, hundreds and thousands of litres of information on your head, precariously balanced. And a week or two passes, and I swear it's like you accidentally lost balance and most of that knowledge is kind of spilled out. Right. But, you know, that's the the thing. As you get older and your medical career progresses, instead of just facts and, you know, pieces of data, what you then accrue is the wisdom and knowledge that you can really build on from the knowledge. But I cannot imagine the busy neurons of Dr. Neo right now as he gets set for the exam. So best wishes to you. Best wishes. I know he'll be fine. Absolutely. I know he'll nail it. What's the format? Is it literally sit so, down in a quiet room and answer questions? Is there any interview component? Is there... Yeah, so so the, for most colleges, you will have uh, written exams and clinical exams. So the written's are just, often are just computer-based, and that's caused a lot of controversy yeah, in recent yeah, years. Yeah. As things have gone yeah. bust, do you have a backup plan or not? Uh, and then you do have uh, clinical exams in most specialties where you have to see patients and someone is observing you. Sometimes those exams also uh, are what we call the Viva format where you are just sitting opposite an examiner and they ask you questions and they'll mm-hmm. give you a case and they just kind of pepper you with questions yep. for 10, 20 minutes. 
It is the most anxiety-inducing thing that I've done in my life. Shout out to everyone who's sitting there. Yeah. Exams. yeah. Um, with no intention at all of potentially being a downer, but what is the pass rate? So it varies from college to college. It's not unusual to see pass rates anywhere between 40 to 70% yeah. in the various colleges, uh-huh. which means that enormous number of people don't yeah. make it through. So it's not unusual to sit twice, even three times. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's interesting. You, you, you look back on that stuff and you realise that whether you passed or not the first or second time, almost no indicator at all of yeah, how right. good quality a doctor, how knowledgeable you are either. It doesn't test bedside manner. Well, you said there was some observation, Yes, right? the, the clinical stuff absolutely tests yeah. uh, the bedside manner for sure. Well, best wishes, sending vibes down the radio waves to Dr. Neo. Hey, we wanted to mention some radiotherapy-related awards. First of all, directly, Australians of the Year. The Australians of the Year this year went to Professors Long and Scolia for their work with melanomas. One of those works is this kind of real-life quasi-experiment that has been conducted on one of the Australians of the Year by the other one, who's their <laughs> colleague. But their speech was wonderful. They took that moment to thank, commemorate and honour anyone and everyone who's had melanoma and raise awareness for sun safety, trying to change this cultural concept we have of this bronze skin being beautiful and ideal. No, stay out of the sun was their message, uh, loud and clear. And, of course, yeah, wanting uh, lots of funding to, towards this devastation disease and finding a cure, which we have made so much progress on in the last five to ten years. It's great to see scientists getting that national recognition too. I mean, I love my sportsmen, like most people, for one reason or another, but I do really love it when people like this get the gong as Australians here. Yeah, it was... I mean, watching them give that speech and you know, looking at the audience there, the, the way they were just riveted and there were tears, you know what they were doing was so intrinsically yeah. special. Yeah. Uh, there was no denying it, so I'm glad they got the gongs. You you mentioned how they're kind of effectively experimenting on themselves. I love scientist stories of them experimenting on themselves. They don't always end well. But there's a romance to this, isn't <laughs> there? There is. There, there yeah. is. And, you know, on one hand, we really do try to not sell the romantic story of wild radical experiments but the whole point is is that you could not have two more qualified people doing these experiments where the subject understands the ins and outs of the benefits and risks so if there is ever going to be a quote-unquote wild experimentation this is it yeah this is the scenario in which you want it done not so much directly medical science related but certainly triple r related and i want to just take the opportunity for my first time behind the mic uh, for 2024 to add my acknowledgement of the ao that was received by denise highlands phoebe squared and kath letch for their services uh variously to community radio and broadcasting um and many other attributes Long-time Triple R listeners will be very familiar with those names. Denise still doing twang on um, Saturday afternoons. Phoebe Square, been around 30-something years on Triple R. Many, like myself, was introduced to her when she was doing Breakfasters back in the day and now doing Maps uh, on Monday evenings. And, of course, Kath Letch, who was the station manager at the time and instrumental in the big move from Fitzroy to here in Brunswick East, among many other credits. But really, if you want to take the moment to um, add congratulations to their getting the gong and the AO on the awards recently. Bravo. Hey, great show coming up. Absolutely. Great Later on, we'll be talking about dementia in prisons. I promise this is 
even more controversial than you can imagine. So we'll be getting stuck into that with a couple of Aussie researchers. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really, really looking forward to that. I, I think uh, in in public health as a as a as a meta topic, we, prisons get marginalised. Tried a couple of times during the COVID period to talk about COVID in prisons and how what you know what are the human rights issues about protecting prisoners uh, from the plague and all of that sort of thing, but we don't really talk about the health of prisoners or other people in the criminal justice system. Yeah, and and I think the kind of cognitive block there is, you know, we often kind of think, oh, they, quote-unquote, they deserve it. Well, Dimension Prisons casts a big old question mark on that entire idea, really. So we'll be getting stuck into that with a couple of researchers from Swinburne. Yeah, that'll be great. And that'll be coming up somewhere around about half past the hour or so. Our first guest in a short little while will be filmmaker, documentary maker uh, Emma Watts and Dr. Fernando uh, Altamirano. I'll double check that I'm pronouncing that correctly, but they're coming in to talk about their documentary that will be screening on SBS as part of the Australia Uncovered series that premieres on the 15th of February. I gather it will be uh, live and, of course, on demand as it is these days. And it's the last chance to save a life. And this is a remarkable story of science's efforts to address, I you know, um, I'm going to use my language, we'll find out what's better language to use when we speak to the guests, but the race to beat superbugs, you know, if antibiotics are becoming less and less um, of a utility in treatment, uh, then what's the alternative? Well, it turns out there might be something called phage therapy that might be part of this, a science that's not particularly new, so that's interesting in itself. It's been hanging around since early in the 20th century but never applied it to the extent that we might be finding out it could be from our guests. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Radiotherapy, myself, panel beater, and as you heard, uh, Dr Sharma there. And we're joined by two wonderful guests to talk to us about a documentary that will be premiering on SBS um, on the 15th of February as part of the Australia Uncovered series in this particular episode, The Last Chance to Save a Life. We have Emma Watts, the filmmaker, with us, and Dr. Fernando... Fernando Gordillo Altamirano. Oh. Listen, it's taken me two years to get it right, so, you know. <laughs> there we go. You're well on your way. <laughs> hey, welcome, guys. Great Thanks to have so you much for us. having it. Oh, Thank it's you. really fabulous. We're really looking forward to talking to you about this thing called phage therapy. But before we get to that, can you give us a sense of who you are and how you get to being involved in a documentary on phage therapy? Emma. Well, uh, I'm a producer-director. I've been working in television for about uh, 15 years. And over the last, I guess, seven years, uh, I've become really interested in making science content. I moved to New York City and got a bunch of jobs working for, you know, the World Science Festival and a health science documentary company making a lot of content for CNN. And I stumbled across this amazing story about this woman who went to Egypt on holiday with her husband. Uh, He got this terrible bacterial infection in his guts. He had to be medevaced home to America. He was in and out of a coma for nine months. He was at death's door. She's a scientist. So she said to me, one day I woke up and I said, I've got to stop being a wife by his bedside and I have to start being a scientist. And she started looking through all the journals. The antibiotics had stopped working for her husband completely and utterly. The doctors came in and said, you know, it's all over for him. It's time to say goodbye. And she found this thing called phage therapy online. 
And it hadn't been used in America in over, I think, 80 years. And she managed to get these things called phages, they're viruses, to her husband. The very short version of the story is that uh, she got them to her husband. After three days, he woke up from his coma. Seven days later, he sat up in bed. Three months later, he went home. And so she's become this huge voice for phage therapy around the world. And I was trying to pitch this documentary in America. And suddenly COVID happened. I moved back to Australia, made a bunch of COVID films with Norman Swan and a whole bunch of people, became completely obsessed in that world. And my husband's actually uh, an infectious disease doctor. And he's always been a little bit sceptical about phage therapy. You know, when I first brought it up with him, he said to me, oh, you know, have you been reading some crazy journals? (laughs) The (laughs) woo-woo. Exactly. But... The ideas about phage therapy have changed dramatically over the last five, seven years. Uh And then one day he said to me, did you know at my hospital they're trialling this thing you're always going on about, this phage therapy? And that got me in touch with the brilliant Fernando Gorilla Altamirano, uh, who's in here today. (laughs) who's kind of He's one part of this work that's led by Professor Anton Pellerg at the Alfred. Thanks for that. And listeners, if you're going, okay, you've already mentioned phage therapy a few times now and I'm still not sure what it is. Hang in there. We're going to get to it and we're going to make sure we're all over it in a second. Fernando. Yes. How do you fit in? Well, I'm originally from Ecuador and uh, back in Ecuador, I uh, graduated as a medical doctor. However, I didn't really like the hospital life, you know, the never-ending shifts and, you know, having your entire life revolving around what the hospital needs from you. So I said, all right, what, what's plan B? And, you know, that led me to research, which eventually brought me to Australia. And uh, I guess that I was really interested in becoming this sort of dual professional, you know, using my medical background, but also using some laboratory skills and some research skills to try to bring it all together. And I did my master's here in Australia. And then I was saying, yep, I want to do science. This is what I want to do. So I was pretty much shopping for PhD programs. And that led me to this incredible project led by Associate Professor Jeremy Barr at Monash University. He had been involved in the clinical case that Emma just described about phage therapy. He was now starting his lab at Monash University and he wanted to recruit young scientists, perhaps doctors that wanted to get involved in phage therapy. So I really didn't know much about phages either. But I said, hey, it looks like something tailor-made for me. It's something that will involve my medical background. It's something that will involve my laboratory research skills. I got in contact with Jeremy and I ended up studying phages for my PhD for four years. Absolutely fell in love with the science behind it all. And once I finished that, I was like, okay, what's the next step? And Professor Anton Pellick, who is the head of infectious diseases at the Alfred, he was one of my PhD co-supervisors. And he said, well, you've done the lab work during your PhD. Do you want to come to the Alfred and test it on patients, you know, (laughs) take it into the real world? And I said, yeah, that's the best offer someone has ever made me. So I started working at the Alfred, and that's where eventually we met Emma, who was interested in telling our story. So you really did end up blending the research and the clinical at the end of the day. Okay, now give it to us straight. Phage therapy, we've been talking about it like it's something truly mysterious and historical and you know not perhaps so recognised by, by the mainstream recently, but what is it at its core? So phages, 
they are viruses. And whenever people hear the word virus, they oh, yeah. immediately get scared. Mm. They immediately jump to measles, HIV, COVID, you know, things that harm us. I'm here to tell you that not all viruses are evil. Not all viruses are bad. <laughs> These viruses, phages, are actually our friends because uh -huh. they do not kill. They do not harm human cells. They can only kill, specifically kill bacteria. So bacteria can infect us, right? So I always try to explain it as the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Uh -huh. So phages can be our allies. So we can use phages to treat patients with bacterial infections where antibiotics no longer work. Now, I guess phage therapy is fitting in is this constant arms race we have between antibiotics and the bugs that they are designed to kill. The bugs keep evolving. I guess the big question is, what is it about phages that prevents that from happening? So phages, you're saying, kill bacteria. Do bacteria not evolve to escape phages? They absolutely do. Ah. They absolutely do. Bacteria are not dumb, right? They will always <laughs> find a way to escape from whatever we're throwing at them. And these include phages. But here's the catch. Whereas antibiotics are, you know, chemical molecules, they are inert, they do not change, phages can, right? So phages can keep evolving alongside bacteria to keep infecting bacteria. So is this arms race, you know, where antibiotics will not change, will not evolve, will not do anything past what they were designed to do. Phages can keep evolving. And the other great thing about phages is that they are pretty much everywhere. And there is pretty much an unlimited number of phages that we can discover, that we can isolate and that we can use. Before we come to the um, specifics of the doco, Emma, just um, what is the status of the science at the moment? Like, uh, we've known about phages for a while, I gather, but just listening to you speak, we're paying more attention to it now than we have for a while. Is that, is that a fair characterisation? That is correct. Phages were discovered over a century ago. Right. They were, in fact, discovered before antibiotics. But one of the tricky things with phages or one of the difficult things to work with phages is that they are very, very specific. And by specific, I mean picky. A very specific type of phage can only kill a specific type of bacterium. So if you have a patient that has a bacterial infection, the very first thing that the doctors need to do is diagnose that infection and identify the specific bacterium that is infecting that patient. And a century ago, that wasn't too easy to do, right? We yeah. didn't have the diagnostic tests that we have now. We didn't have all of the science that we have now. So it was very, very difficult for scientists and doctors a century ago to really advance phage therapy. And then, you know, 20 years after phages were first discovered, Alexander Fleming finds this beautiful thing called penicillin. <laughs> and uh, he realized that with antibiotics we didn't really need to know what specific bacterium was infecting a patient because an antibiotic right. can kill a lot of them, right? It's like throwing a yeah. bomb at, at, at many bacteria. So doctors were like, well, this is easy. This is way, way easier than trying to, to pinpoint what's, mm. what's the bacterium infecting a patient. So yeah, everyone jumped into the antibiotic bandwagon. And it's only now we're starting to see these very alarming rates of 
antibiotic resistance that as a community, scientists are saying, we need new strategies. We yeah. now need a plan B. What, what are our options, right? And yeah. we are sort of rediscovering and saying, hey, remember that thing we discovered a century ago? Phages, they, they were promising. Let's, let's give them another look. So as you said, we are trying to rediscover them and we are interested in them again. And this has only happened in the past 10 to 15 years. Exciting. And Emma, I guess the documentary is an opportunity to put all of this science into the personalisation of people's stories as we speak. Yeah, I was uh, really lucky with the patients who we followed because obviously, you know, you set out on a journey to make a documentary following these phage therapy cases. We didn't know who was going to come through the door. We were following patients both at the Alfred in Melbourne and at the Westmead in Sydney. So we didn't know, you know, who was going to come through. We didn't know if they were going to say yes to being injected with trillions of viruses. (laughs) We didn't know if the scientists were going to be able to find a phage. As Fernando said, the phages are very picky. We did not know if the scientists were going to find a phage to match that bacteria that's infecting the patient. And then we also didn't know whether the patients were going to say yes to a whole documentary team following them around at one of the most difficult moments of their lives. So there are a lot of unknowns going into it, but I really wanted to shine a light on the work of these scientists. I think it's so important what they're doing. One of the real reasons I wanted to make this documentary is I'd come home from work and my husband would too, we'd eat dinner. He'd talk about the patients in the hospital that he had who were dying of bacterial infections that antibiotics couldn't help. And I feel like none of my friends understand or know that, you know. We all think that if you've got a UTI, if you've got a staph infection, if you've got pneumonia, whatever it is, the antibiotics are going to work every time. And really the truth of the matter is that the antibiotics are stopping working. And that's one of the reasons that I wanted to make the film and also show the story of these patients as well as the story of the scientists, you know, trying to solve this problem. And I really hit the jackpot with the scientists Fernando, just to describe to people listening here, he's got like a double helix tattooed on one arm. He's got a phage. Now, if you've ever seen a phage, they're the craziest looking microbes you could imagine. They look like an alien space kind of lander. You know, it's amazing. And his passion for this science. My scientists and doctors in this documentary, they cry. They, They really care about the people and this huge problem, and there's so much passion, and I I really just want to shine a light on that. It's so great to see you both so passionate about this, and yet this is what I want to ask about. So, I I guess because of your interest in this through what you've learned through your partner, you you can see that this is a big problem. Fernando, this is your life, and yet COVID happened, work got derailed, I guess my question is, we seem perpetually just hit by crisis after crisis, you know, plagues and wars and everything else. What's it like trying to deal with something that is a legitimate, almost kind of existential problem, really, in antimicrobial resistance and trying to convince people even that this is a big deal? Like you're saying, you know, things are happening right now and people don't know about them. How bad is it right now? And how much do you think people realise this is a problem? I'm terrified of it. I don't really want, you know, people to become paranoid of antibiotic resistance, but it is important to let them know that it is a problem. It is an issue. You won't perhaps encounter an antibiotic resistant superbug out in the community, Hmm. but in hospitals where we are using antibiotics and disinfectants and sterilization methods on a daily basis, that's where we are really 
pushing the bacteria to evolve, to become resistant to everything that we know. So, for example, when I have a loved one that has to be hospitalized for any kind of reason, even if it's a programmed minor surgery, I do get that feeling, that thought in the back of my head. I really don't want them to get infected by anything. It'd really be bad news. So, yes, it's definitely a challenge. And experts that have run the numbers, have considered the data, have put forward that, yes, in the coming decades, in the coming years, this is going to become one of the major, the leading causes of mortality, unless we do something. So I guess my role here is that I'm really excited to bring hope to the problem. And I'm not saying that phage therapy is going to be the silver bullet that save us all, because I don't think it is. It is not going to replace antibiotics, but it is another tool in our toolbox to fight against infections where antibiotics have failed. It is a real problem. I'm concerned about it, but I'm also working against it, and mm. I'm really excited to be doing that work. And I think that's one of the biggest things about the documentary. After making so much content about COVID, I was tired, as I imagine everyone was, of kind of bad news. And just at its heart, the documentary is all about hope and people trying to bring about change and sort of throwing everything at the wall. You imagine medical trials as these big teams of doctors and scientists with a lot of money. But it was funny, when I went to follow these scientists at both the Westmead and out at Monash and the Alfred, it's two people. In Sydney, it's two women. In Melbourne, Mm. it's two guys. They're working their public holidays and their breaks and their things. If there's a patient in the hospital and they need a new batch of phages, it's down to two people. They're bringing the phages from... Monash to the Alfred in the back of a hatchback. It's not, there's not huge amounts of funding for this. And I think that would be something great if if we could change that, if they could get a bit more money behind them to be able to do it on a larger scale. We can always use more resources. I can always use an extra pair of hands. So yeah, it's also a, a good idea to encourage young people and scientists and, you know, everyone in general to get involved with these sorts of things. It's a really, really interesting field to be working in. Fantastic, guys. I'm sorry time's beaten us, but it's been fabulous talking to you. This documentary airs on SBS as part of the Australia Uncovered series, premiering on the 15th of February, if I've got that right. Last Chance to Save a Life, where we can look at the personalised stories of this science behind phages and the potential it has and the challenges we face dealing with superbugs and uh, antibiotics and their role in recovery. Thanks very much, Emma, and thank you, Fernando. Thanks thank so much you. for having us. Triple R. Radiotherapy, myself, panel beater with Dr. Sharma in the studio, and we're very pleased to welcome our second uh, pair of uh, guests for the morning, speaking to us about something that perhaps, not even perhaps, simply doesn't get a lot of attention, and that is the health and well-being of prisoners in our criminal justice system, Um, and more specifically, um, this morning talking about dementia in prisoners. We're very pleased and happy to welcome Dr. Margaret Nixon and Ella Kofit. Have I got that right? Got Ella? that right. I was, I was struggling with some names in the, with the previous guest. You know, I've got to try and get myself sorted. You're doing all right. Doing okay yep. there. 
let's set up your relationship to this idea or this research area of dementia in the criminal justice system, specifically with prisoners. Now, you're doing your PhD research on this, Ella. Yes, I've just completed my doctorate uh, research in dementia in prisons, looking at the prevalence and impact of dementia in prisons. Uh, But I come from a 10-year work history of working in the field of uh, dementia research in the context of clinical trials and had a quite quite an interest in that field and moved forward and took it through to the forensic setting. What differentiates an approach to thinking about the questions around dementia in the general population and thinking about dementia for the prison population? I think prison populations are very unique in a way they're very different to the general population in terms of their histories and uh, life experiences and that's something that really should be considered in terms of their medical needs and their health needs as they age in prisons. Wonderful. Just before we go into greater depth, Margaret, where do you fit into this picture? Well, I was the very fortunate supervisor that Ella approached (laughs) at the Centre for Forensic Behavioural Science at Swinburne. So my broader research area is cognitive impairment more generally and um, and specifically I'm interested in, in um, justice-involved populations and I really I have a bit of a passion for getting in prisons and seeing what's going on in there. In our world, I'd probably be more interested in what we might call responsivity factors, so things that the individual can't change about themselves that we have to work with if we're hoping to intervene or take care of them in any sort of justice situation. So then Ella walks in with this great idea for this project about um, dementia in prisons and I went that sounds bang on let's do that so many many years she spent trying to get this project up and running as you can imagine with COVID it wasn't the easiest thing to get into prisons and do assessments with people prisons are tricky to do research in in any regard so Ella's been very very persistent and we finished that up just recently actually so yeah she's done really well I think because of the conversation uh, ahead of us let's just establish why it's difficult and different doing research with prison populations? Well, for a start, you would imagine it'd be quite easy because your participants are just sitting there and they can't go anywhere. (laughs) And that's great. But um, there's a lot of security in a prison. Prisons are difficult places to access. And also they're quite a vulnerable population in lots of ways. So ethics clearance for any study inside a prison is actually very complicated and very long and drawn out as it should be. Without that hurdle, you then got just actually getting into a prison. So you can turn up and you can have all your appointments set up and you have your little room designated for you and your person escorts you to the room and you've got your clipboard and then there's a code called and the whole day's called right. off. And So you, you waste a lot of time in prisons. Prisons, things move slowly and they are always going to prioritise the health and safety and well-being of staff and um, people in custody in that setting. Your research is about 17th sure. down on the list of things that they care about on that day. So it's tricky for that reason and, and it's also... So you're dealing with a group of people who aren't perhaps the most pro-social, so they may not necessarily care or want to participate in your research yeah. because it's not of a direct benefit to them. Yeah. So to persuade people to opt into a research study can be a little bit time-consuming. I'm curious about that. What is the buy-in there? How do you convince them? Luckily for us, prisons are really boring, <laughs> so <laughs> there's not a lot to do. And some personality styles who may be more commonly seen in a prison setting are really interested in interacting with other people so they can test out some of their skills perhaps in um, manipulating and charming people so that works for our favour as well. We do have a selection bias obviously then in every sample so you're not going to get a really representative sample in any opt-in study within a prison environment but we accept that as a limitation. It's why when people first come to forensic research they'll 
often be a little bit sceptical about the rigour and validity of some of the work that we do, but once they accept some of the issues we have to overcome in order to get anything done, uh, people are a lot more forgiving of some of the um, the limitations of the work that we do. And it is very important work because I imagine it's becoming more and more relevant with an ageing population. I'm guessing that's reflected in the prison cohort or...? Yeah, it is. I mean, as the population ages, and Ella's research has really borne this out, is that it's not just that the population is ageing. It's a lot of those other factors such as the fact that we've got DNA that will allow us to prosecute someone for an offence that they may have perpetrated 30, 40 years ago means that instead of being incarcerated at the age of 24, 25 when they may have committed that offence, they're being incarcerated at the age of 55, 60 or 70 or sometimes even older. Yeah, we also see a lot of changes to sentencing principles and laws over the last few years. Can you give us an example of that? So limiting um, parole, for example, opportunities for parole. The removal of limit statutes of limitations, which means that crimes can be prosecuted many years after they've been committed. We've also, hmm. you know, seen, like Margaret said, the, the changes to DNA and the advancements in that. And then, of course, the general population is ageing anyway. In the article that I read uh, as background uh, to speaking with you today, you mentioned this principle of equivalency. Will you tell us the, the principle of equivalency? So the principle of equivalency um, is core to the justice system and it essentially states that prisoners are eligible and deserve the same level and quality of health care as those in the general population and it's really a human rights issue mm. and it's about taking care of the people that are under under the state's care. Which at a general public level, sorry Dr Sharma, which at a general public level might seem at odds with the idea for those, not everybody sees the prison system this way, but uh, for those who see prison as quite directionally punishment and therefore... The, this idea of equivalency might be jarring. I'd, I'd argue that the deprivation of liberty is the punishment. Yeah, and, right. And that's really where that ends. And, but once we've put someone in the care of the state, which is really what a period of incarceration yeah. is, that person is eligible to still be cared for in a manner that is equivalent to someone in the community. And you'll often see this with birthing, pregnancy, childbirth, where people are giving women in, who are in custody entitled to maternal health care. Um, and we also see it with cancer. You know, we, we sometimes have to transport prisoners from where they're in custody to a hospital in order to receive that equivalence of care. Where things get a little bit fuzzy is when we start talking about psychiatric illnesses mm. and degenerative illnesses like dementia. So let's speak a bit about that. If we're talking about this principle, of equivalency when it comes to healthcare. When it comes to dementia, what are the ways in which the prison environment is a barrier to appropriate care for someone with dementia or even hostile? To uh, it? I think prisons are designed to be safe and secure. That means they're full of lots of hard surfaces, unremovable objects, unchangeable environments, lighting can't be changed, noise can't be changed. Um, you've also got a whole lot of younger, stronger, physically fit prisoners, all housed with older prisoners who are probably more frail and more vulnerable. Then there's the whole issue of if a prisoner is experiencing cognitive impairment, what kind of vulnerability does that place them at, either to other prisoners in terms of being taken advantage of or to prison staff who might misinterpret their cognitive impairments as, as intentional misbehaviour? It's funny you say these things because a lot of these environmental factors are 
clearly unique to prisons, and yet softer versions of this play out even in how we deal with people with dementia in the community. I work full-time in aged care, and my goodness, there's an entire discourse happening on whether those environments that are purpose-built for people who've not committed any criminal acts but have you know, committed nothing but the mere act of developing dementia and whether those environments are suited or, or, or not. So if we were to modify those environments, what 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 would it look like? Well, there's, there's already been some um, actions taken. Essentially, we've got some programs that look at prisoner carers, so training younger prisoners to look after older prisoners as best they can. Um, that comes with its own issues, obviously. Mm. But then upskilling of staff. One problem we have is that dementia probably looks really different in a prison where the day is regimented and things don't change. You don't need to pay your bills on time. So we don't have those early indicators of dementia can we just um, pause on that point? Because yeah. I was listening to Dr Sharma talk about, you know, the, the facilities are set up. Most people, um, I'm assuming, um, have family and friends around them. That's often maybe the first time they find out that there might be something to think about in terms of dementia. In a prison, who's looking out for you to maybe say, hey, there's a behavioural change here or a competency change here? Well, that's exactly right. I mean, this is why um, in a lot of Ella's work, she's been looking at um, how custodial staff are the people who are really the people who are going to notice a decline in someone's dementia. And so educating custodial staff about what those early indicators are is so important because everyone in the community, if you walk around and you ask people, what do you know about dementia? About 50% of them are going to have a really good idea and 50% of them are not. And that's true for medical staff. It's true for people working in aged care will have very different ideas. Everyone knows, oh, I can't find my car keys and I keep losing <laughs> words, right? Okay. Well, that's me most Monday mornings. <laughs> but if or you're me talking... pressing buttons in a radio show. <laughs> <laughs> if you're talking about um, in a custodial setting, as Edel was just saying, if the day is always the same and you're... You always have this on Tuesdays and this happens on Wednesdays and things like that. It's a lot harder because someone's telling you what to do all the time. You're not going to see that. So people really need to be attuned to some of the more diverse signs yeah, or less yeah. less obvious signs of a cognitive decline with someone in that setting. And I think you make a good point, Dr Sharma, with regards to you know the lack of a caregiver or someone close to you that notices those changes over time. That's one of the first sort of diagnostic things we look at, right, is change over time. And if correctional staff aren't involved enough, understand enough, how do we measure that there has been a change over time? It was, I guess, a challenge of my own research that we couldn't suggest what has happened over the last few years. We couldn't show that decline over time. One thing to talk about, I suppose, the medical side of things, but I want to just take a quick detour on something that you did delve in your op-ed. I started thinking about this topic a couple of weeks before I read your op-ed, which is when I read about perhaps one of the most heinous crimes ever committed, Joseph Fritzl, and how his legal team applied for him to be sent out of prison into uh, like a residential-type aged care facility because he's developed, a, as they said, dementia-related illness. I don't know what dementia-related illness particularly kind of means. Let's just remind people what uh, Joseph Fritzl's story. Yeah, I'm in two minds about how much we want to work about what he did. It is, I mean, yeah, put it this way, it's in terms of a, a single crime committed by one person to another person, we're leaving out mass murders and genocide, is probably the most egregious yeah. human, example of human behaviour I can think of full stop. Yeah, like, yeah I number think one a lot on of list. people can relate to that. Yeah. It's, it's probably one of the most heinous crimes we, yeah. we hear of and... It's not just one person. There are quite a few victims involved in that yeah. crime. So. So, so that said, right, so we, we've talked about the, the moral principle of you know, equivalency when it comes to giving care to someone there, but we know that once there is significant amount of dementia, I'm not really talking about him here per se, 
when there's significant enough degradation of the brain in dementia, who really are you at that point anyway? And who is it that we are kind of punishing? I think, with, first of all, the, the, his legal team's point was that, well, it's clearly at no risk of you know, kind of reoffending or whatever it is. Have you looked into the, the morality of even keeping them in prison? Is that even the same person we might have in there if the dementia is yeah, far enough gone? Yeah, there is some research out there that sort of looks at once a person's identity is degraded to a point that they no longer are the person they were when they committed the crime, how appropriate is it to keep them in prison? I think what's more important is in terms of their ability to rehabilitate. If someone no longer has the capacity to actually engage in programs that are going to make them not offend in the future or if they no longer have the capacity to commit a crime or if they no longer have capacity to sort of be a danger to the community then what are the sentencing principles that are sort of keeping them there Mm. and in the Fritzl case we have retribution which is punishing the moral wrong Um, that alone might be enough but he is a very unique case. Mm. I think though we're going to have to really accept that as the ageing prisoner population is is growing and we've got cases like you can see this with um for example george pell had a similar argument put forward for his release due to health concerns including cognitive decline and chris dawson's legal defense with the fellow from the teacher's pet he is another example where his legal team is arguing that as he's experiencing the onset of a dementia related illness that he should also be given compassionate release there is a community expectation that we punish those who do egregious crimes in our society so we're not talking about minor offences we're talking about people who have you know done quite serious offences and I don't think the expectations of the community would be met by releasing people into the community in terms of the victims Hmm. access to justice. Goodness it's just the the medical the 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 ethical it's it's quite a little quagmire really so we're glad you're looking into this. So just to um, wrap us up with the short amount of time we've got left can you capture for us where are we at? What are the prison? What is the criminal justice system doing? What is the research? Um, where's the attention for research at the moment in relation to this? So where we're at is that there appears to be some frameworks and and some steps taken in terms of looking after frail prisoners. I don't know how much of that considers cognitive impairment as an issue, and so I guess this is a bit of a call to action to see if this problem's only going to grow as the population grows. We've seen an increase in the number of prisoners in the last. 10 years, so particularly older prisoners. So it is, it is a pressing issue. It's a bit of a call to action for how, how are we going to manage this moving forward. Wonderful. Dr Margaret Nixon and Dr Ella Coford. Nearly. 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 <laughs> Completed the doctor, but not yet awarded. <laughs> no, no, hasn't been given that piece of examination. Oh, I'm, I'm very excited for you. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, thanks so much for joining us uh, this morning and, and, and raising awareness, if nothing else, about paying attention to prisoners and prison populations in their health, in this case, uh, dementia. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. Myself, panel beta, and Dr. Sharma have been with you for the last um, almost an hour with some really interesting guests. What are your thoughts? Just um, a couple of things going off for me. Yeah, well, just uh, there was this one little gem that uh, that I missed out that, that Ella mentioned actually was that a lot of the times because these people aren't really forgetting things in prison, people who've got dementia, so the first symptoms of dementia may not be the 
obvious forgetting stuff. It is what we call the behavioural psychological symptoms of dementia. So it seems like they're having angry outbursts, etc. You might just confuse that for this being an unruly prisoner as opposed to someone who's got a degrading brain because of dementia. So I thought that was a little gem that went Incredibly fraught environment for diagnosis. Uh, Clearly, clearly. And... You know, just even alluding to the fact that we've got to upskill correctional services staff to be able to identify it. That's I mean, a whole other skill. We, we're having trouble upskilling aged care staff to <laughs> yeah. do so. Uh, so yeah. I don't know how realistic it is that this is going to happen, but at least it, it tells us what we need to aim for if we need if we are truly going to demonstrate this principle of equivalency. Yeah. Are you excited about Fanges? Uh, Phages, yeah, absolutely. I'm very excited. Uh, you know, I've got to say, I have not felt hopeful about this problem for a very long time, but the exuberance and charisma, dare I say, of uh, both our interviews before has really rubbed off on me. So I'm feeling hopeful. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing that, Doco, this coming week. Hey, it's been uh, great to see you back in the studio, Dr Sharma, and uh, hopefully we will have a Dr Neo with a smile on his face next month. And Dr Emma may or may not be. Oh, yes. We will see. I'm going to See if I can persuade it for one, one more. more. There's a whole story there. You'll yeah, find out we'll more find when out we are back. That. But it is time uh, to wrap up all things health and well-being. It's been Radiotherapy. Have a great day, everybody. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.